Grab a seat and grab a Bible, if you would, and open up to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be starting a new series this morning, going through the first half of the book of Daniel. The first half. So we're going to do the first six chapters. It'll take us six weeks. We'll do a chapter a week. I've titled this sermon series... A subtitle, I should say, because it's Daniel, sort of the title. We're studying the book of Daniel. But, but subtitled it, Living Among Lions. And I want to explain that subtitle a little bit before we go on. Um, it's, always, it's always hard to, to name a sermon series, by the way. Not always. Sometimes it's harder than others, I should say. Um, but certainly with, with the book of Daniel, the, the theme of, of living among the lions is something that comes out of the text. Daniel chapter 6. A very familiar story, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, right? And God delivers him from that, that predicament, that place. Um, so the, the theme of, of lions is, uh, is certainly in the, in the text. Uh, as we'll find out, this takes place in Babylon, uh, the kingdom of Babylon. This is, uh, this is where the uh, nation of Judah was uh, conquered by the, the Babylonians about seven 100 plus years before the birth of Christ. And, um, and Babylon was the, the dominant world power at the time, the dominant kingdom and uh, empire in the world. And, uh, and lions uh, was, a, was sort of a symbol of power. In fact, that, that mosaic in the graphic there of a, of a lion is a Babylonian mosaic. Uh, so that was, that was part of their uh, sort of identity, sort of this this is who we are. We're the lions, right? We're the big tough guys uh, in terms of empires in the world. Um, so there's, there's some th- themes there that play into my choice of subtitle. But the reason why we're doing the first six chapters of Daniel is because that narrative really helps explain what it's like for God's people to live in a culture that's dominantly the culture of the world rather than, you know, what they were used to coming from Judah, uh, even though it was, it was sinful and messed up and they were judged for it, it was still this sort of predominantly, you know, this, uh, the predominantly a, a, a theocracy, right? There was, there was this, uh, if we were to take it, just, I guess, make this easier. If we were to take it in modern vernacular, it's sort of like, what's it like to live in a very Christianized society and then be uprooted and pulled into a very non-Christian, a very post a godless, maybe or a different kind of God society. What, is that, what does that look like for God's people? How do we live in the culture of the world? And I think these six chapters give some really good, really good uh, principles and understanding for how we ought to navigate living in a world that is ruled by the, 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 the small K king of the world rather than the big K king of heaven, the God that we know and follow. Um, it's not meant to be a us versus them kind of uh, mentality that we should take into this. Okay, it's it's really as we're going to see through the book of Daniel, the 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 young men that are the central characters here in the story, they are seeking to live missionally in that society to to dis, to display to Nebuchadnezzar and all those in in the kingdom there what what it means to know the God, the true God, the God of the world, and to know Him in such a way that brings blessing. 
And there will be lots of ways in which God's people here bring blessing into this foreign culture. It's not an us versus them, even though that's going to exist. There's definitely going to be tensions. Um, but it's it, that my mindset in, in naming the title here, Living Among Lions, is not that you would think in terms of how are you sort of this isolated group of people living in this pagan world, but how do we represent and reflect the goodness and the glory of our God in the midst of a, of a society that doesn't believe in Him, right? And is in many ways opposed to Him. That's my mindset in titling it as I have. So, that being said, let's look to the text. And uh, let's begin to read it and understand what's going on here. And before we do that, let me ask the Lord to speak. Father, as we open up Your Word, we recognize that this is indeed Your written Word to us. These are inspired words. These are inspired events that You acted in. This is, his, his, this is history. This happened. And these are Your people. And Lord, this is what You did in them and through them. This is how You brought glory to Yourself and this is how you cared for your own and displayed yourself in the world. And so, Lord, knowing that that's how you acted then, we also firmly believe that's how you always act and still act. And so, Lord, as those who follow Jesus and say we are your people today, we want to see you acting in and through us in such a way that, you, that your name is glorified, that your uh, your truth is known, that blessings are bestowed in the name of Christ, that the world might see that you really are not only the only God, the true God, but a good God, faithful God, righteous and just, and, and all of those perfections that, Lord, we praised you for earlier. So help us, speak to us, and work in us, apply this to us, so that all those things could be said of us as well that we bring you glory through your Son, we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. So, first two verses again we're setting the scene. This again is the this is the beginning of the captivity of of Judah being carried off many of them into Babylon. This was the promised judgment of God on them for their unrepentance, for sin, for unrighteousness in the land. And God said, "Look, if this continues, you're going to be conquered, and this is what happens. And so, uh, again, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians. Judah, the southern kingdom, was conquered by the Babylonians, and this is what we see. Last week, we were in the book of Ezra. We were talking about the return from that captivity. This is the beginning of that captivity, okay? And, we're, and we see here that Nebuchadnezzar, is the, he's the king of Babylon, right? So he is the most powerful human figure in the world at this time. And not only does he come in and he, he conquers them and carries them off, but he takes with them and him all of the vessels of the worship of God in Jerusalem at that time, right? So you, this is a significant statement here that the word of God is making here. It is a, it is a defilement of the worship of God in 
Jerusalem. All of those things are brought not only out, but taken into the house of a false god. This is a, this is, these are dark days. And this is a dark proclamation of just the state of the world and the judgment of God going on here with Judah. This captivity was a direct result of God's judgment on the sin of His people. But, God always has a redemption plan. right? God has a redemption plan. and He promised that all along. And He leaves a faithful remnant of His people. Even though things were bad in Judah, there were some who were very faithful to Him. And we're going to see that as we go through these chapters, we're looking at the lives primarily of a handful of, interestingly, faithful teenagers. Very young men here as they learn to live for God in the midst of this new environment, this pagan world in Babylon. How will they do it? That's what we're going to aim to find out. And how will this world system try to undo them? Try to bring them down? So let's read on and see how this chapter unfolds. I'm going to read verses 3-8. through Then the king, so this would be uh, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded, commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. The first thing I want us to see here is, is what's, what's Nebuchadnezzar's idea here? What's his plan as he brings these Israelites out of their land and into Babylon? And the first thing we see is that he's got a, an assimilation plan. All right. So our first point this morning, just our kind of crude outline here, is Nebuchadnezzar's assimilation plan. What do you need to do if you're going to bring in people from a foreign culture into a new one? You've got to re-educate them. And that's the first part of the assimilation plan is a new education. Did I go far too far? I don't want to confuse anybody. A new education. All right. So look back at verse four. These were youths without blemish of good appearance. They were skillful in all wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge. They were, they were endowed with this understanding and learning, and they were competent to stand in the king's palace already. But he wants to now teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He wants to teach them the, uh, the best thinking and the philosophies of their new pagan culture. And to understand what that means, this Chaldean literature and language, you, you have to just look over to chapter 2, verse 2. Hopefully it's on the same page or very nearby. It says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and they stood before the king. So who are the Chaldeans? Well, they're, they're a part of this group of people who are like magicians and sorcerers and 
They're dream interpreters. That, that's, that's the kind of philosophy, that's the kind of, of religious exercise that was being practiced here in Babylon. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar wants to take these Jewish young men and school them in. Okay? So, what do you think about that? If you're them, if you're coming out of a, of a culture that's steeped in, in this, and you're being, wanting to be taught the language and the literature of magicians and sorcerers, how are you going to respond to that? Well, you probably wouldn't respond very favorably to that because with the exception of like math, which they'd have taught, well, that's, that's pretty universally true. And, and science, at least to the extent that it's truly biblical science, most, most of, of the other things that were being talked about here had been banned in Israel for a long time. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and you see that the things like magicians and sorcerers and all that, that was an abomination to the Lord. So for these Jewish young men to enter into the study of Chaldean language and literature was to enter into a completely alien thought world, but also one that was in direct conflict with what they not only knew, but what had been told was true and right and good. Now that being said, notice that despite all of the objectionable material that these guys were being forced to learn, it's not this new education that Daniel and his friends ultimately objected to. If you get down to verse 8, you see that what they, what they objected to was the food. Right? So that's interesting. There's no mention in the passage that would indicate that they had a problem with receiving the new education. Now, after what I've just said about how that's been banned and it's, it's, you know, it's a threat, really, to their godly understanding, what they've been taught biblically, why do you suppose that they weren't making a big stink about the education? Well, here's my guess. My guess is that the answer probably lies in a miscalculation on Nebuchadnezzar's part when he selected these guys in the first place. Back in verse 4, it says that they were already wise. They were already skilled in, in wisdom and the understanding that they had learned through God's Word as they were growing up in Judah. They were intelligent, showing again every, every branch of wisdom they were intelligent, under, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. And the Hebrew word here for wisdom had not just intellectual implications, but had ethical and religious meaning attached to it. Okay? They were wise in their faith, is basically what that tells us. Job 28.28, 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So if they were endowed with this understanding and wisdom, it tells us something about their character. They were godly young men. Daniel and his friends needed to be secure in their knowledge of God. They needed to be um, rooted in biblical truth in order for them to be able to study these other pagan ideas without fear of it undermining their faith. And it seems like that's exactly what they were. They're saying, okay, we'll take that. It's not going to affect us, though. Their faith in God was solid enough to withstand it. That's an interesting point here. I think what they, were, what they could say is, we see that as an external influence. It's a significant influence, but it's an external one. And we can endure it. 
And another thing, another reason they did not object to learning about all these pagan things is because I think they would have to know, look, if we're going to be able to live in this culture, and if, if, our, if our understanding of what it means to be uh, God's people means that we're to reflect God into the world, we've got to understand how the world thinks. We've got to understand their philosophy and their religion. We, we've got to be able to engage with that so as to have good communication with them. And so I, I, I personally think that's probably another reason why this isn't the reason, this isn't the thing that they objected to most. Teach us your ways. We want to learn a little bit about you, but we're not going to be affected by that. And that's true for us today as well, right? It should be true for us today as well as believers. We shouldn't be afraid of understanding the world around us. We shouldn't be afraid of understanding how the world thinks. We, we shouldn't be in, afraid of engaging with the, you know, the gods and the goddesses, if you will, the idol worship of this world. Not that we're participating in it, but to understand it so that we can engage well with our neighbors. And the reason why we shouldn't be afraid to do that, it's got to be anchored in this one truth, that our faith is solid enough to withstand it, that we know the truth of God. We we're steeped in the Word of God. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're walking faithfully with the Lord in such a way that those things, as external as they are, never become internal. They can roll off of us, but we can rightly engage with them in such a way to have influence. We've got to know the presuppositions of the people that we live amongst, right? And that's, I think, what they were doing. So this first attempt to assimilate these guys by re-educating them for Nebuchadnezzar was ultimately not very effective. Right? It, it probably helped them more than it helped them because it helped him because they could use it to their advantage. But that's not where he stopped, right? So he, he begins with this new education. The second thing is he wants to give them a new name. We see that here at the end of, of the text that was just read. Now, some commentators have suggested that this was simply a pragmatic move. Giving them a new name was, was probably more a matter of convenience than anything else because the language of the Hebrews and the language of the Chaldeans and of, uh, of, uh, of the Babylonians were so different, they probably had a hard time even pronouncing one another's terms. So a lot of commentators would say, well, this, this may have been just a matter of convenience. Like this, to say Daniel and all these other, it would just been kind of a tongue tire for them. And that might be true. But I think there's something else that was going on. The names that Daniel and his friends had meant something very specific, and they pointed to God. Each one of their names ends with either El or, or Ayah, right? And that is a, the, the, the root there, El or, or Yah, it points to the God of the Jews, the God of heaven. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord shows us grace. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means the Lord helps. Now notice how Nebuchadnezzar's men take those names and they kind of just twist them a little bit. Belteshazzar for Daniel means Bel protect his life. So it started off as God is my judge and now it's Bel, which is another god, a pagan god. Bel, you protect his life. For, for Shadrach, Shadrach means command of Aku. Aku was the moon god. So he goes from Lord show us grace to I'm under the command of the moon god. 
Meshach is who is what Aku is. Aku being another pagan god. Now, Meshach was Mishael, which meant who is what God is. And now he's named who is what Aku is. And then Azariah, which meant the Lord helps, has now been named Abednego, meaning servant of Nego. Again, another pagan god, or Nebu. So not only do these new names uh, really kind of show a lack of creativity, it was just sort of like, what's your name? All right, we're going to twist that a little bit. More importantly, they were designed to make sort of a mockery of the God-honoring names that these guys were given at birth. Now, can you imagine having your name taken away from you? Think about that. That, that, would, that would seem to be a very significant and damaging kind of thing to have your name taken away from you. And yet again, this is not what these guys seem to object to. This is not the thing in verse 8 that it says that they resisted. That was food, not the name. Why? Well, again, if we, if we believe that these guys were rooted in, their wisdom was found in the Word of God, in following after the Lord, then I think they could look at this whole name change thing with a, a bit of a sense of humor. Again, say this is kind of an external thing. Again, these, these new names, are, they're kind of a, a pathetic reworking of our original God-given names, and it's almost, almost silly. And they could see it perhaps for what it really was. It was nothing, ultimately. It's sort of like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament saying, look, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols because those idols are nothing. They don't exist, right? Maybe that's the, the kind of attitude that these guys similarly had with their name. In other words, uh, uh, just as a new, occasion, a new education that they were receiving was nothing more than an external influence, this could be seen in the same light. It doesn't mean that you've lost your identity. Give me a new name. You can call me what you want but I haven't lost my identity. We've all been called names before, right? Perhaps you've even been belittled because of your allegiance to the Lord. But there's, a, there's, a, there's a, 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 an old biblical phrase, and I'm kidding here. It's not really biblical. Sticks and stones may break my bones, right? Names will never hurt me. Well, there's a sense in which there is a, there's a lot of truth to that. When our identity is rooted in Christ... It doesn't mean people can't say hurtful things, but, but they can't take our identity when our identity is rooted in the Lord. And the stronger our faith is, the more laughable those kinds of things can become. So, here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, look, I'm going to try to re-educate you. Well, that doesn't really work to his advantage. It works to theirs. He says, all right, let me try to rename you. Not much resistance from them on that part. So, again, what happens that causes them to resist? What's the final step of the assimilation plan. And it's this, is that he decides he's going to give them a new diet. Look back at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that he ate, the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So for three years, he's got this plan. And here's the part. He says, I'm going to give you the food that I eat and the wine that I drink. Now, keep in mind here, this, this is important. This was not meant to be a slap in the face of the young men. It's not like he said, I'm going to give you, you know, green bologna and moldy bread. It says here that he wanted to give them food from his own kitchen. 
his own supply, wine from his own table. This was choice food. This is probably eating better than most of the people in the kingdom were eating at that time. This was the good stuff. And yet here's where, in verse 8, we get the objection. Again, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He's saying, look, I'll be, I'll be educated in the ways of the Babylonians. I'll take on a new name. But when it comes to eating the food, that's where I'm going to draw the line. So here we're going to move into our second theme here of the text. Daniel's righteous stand. I just read verse 8. Let's continue on. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Look, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why would you? Why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You would endanger my head with the king. And so Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test us. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and then deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. So you catch what Daniel's saying here? Look, look we're not going to eat that food. Give us veggies and water, and then test it out. Give us ten days, and let's see who looks better. Right? And the eunuch's thing. You're putting me at risk here, but Daniel had been given favor somehow in the eyes of this man. He saw Daniel not as a rabble-rouser, but as somebody worthy of respect, right? And Daniel makes this stand. Why did he draw the line here? Well, we, we could say, well, maybe it has something to do with the Jewish dietary laws. I mean, Babylonians would have eaten things like pork. We're told they even ate horse. Um, that was not kosher. That was not okay for the Jewish diet. So was it because of that? Was it because this food had been offered to idols? Well, there's no evidence of that. That's actually more of a New Testament idea. So it's possible that those things contributed to Daniel's decision, but I think there was something more significant than that. And it's something that I want us to fully understand. This is, this is ancient Eastern culture. In ancient Eastern culture, by those standards, if you were to share a meal with someone, it's to commit yourself to them in intimacy. Sharing a meal meant a deep bond. It meant fellowship. It, 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 meant, it meant intimate friendship. There was a covenant significance often associated with sharing a meal with somebody. That's why when we see in the New Testament, when Jesus eats with the sinners and the tax collectors, it's so scandalous. Because he's entering into intimacy with those that the, the, the chief priests and the scribes will say, they're unclean, you can't do that. So anyone who commits your, themselves in allegiance with the king in that way, to eat from his table, to eat his food, would thereby be declaring some kind of obligation of loyalty to serve him. If the king invites you to eat and you eat, you're not only enter, entering into an intimate fellowship there, but there's a there's a an obligation that says, you are the king that I'm, I'm willing to follow and serve. And I believe Daniel rejected this symbol of dependence on the king because he wanted 
to demonstrate that they're maintaining their primary loyalty and obligation to serving God and God alone. So did you catch that? In other words, what Daniel is saying, look, you want to you make me study your books? You want me to learn your language? That's external. I don't have to buy into that. Fine. You want to call me by a different name? No big deal. I know who I am. That's an external thing. But when you ask me to join an intimate friendship and allegiance to your pagan king by eating the choice food from his table, no. That's where I draw the line. That's not an external thing at that point. That dedication of allegiance becomes a moral thing. That becomes an internal thing, and I won't go there. My allegiance is to the Lord. I want us to recognize something that this idea of, of assimilation, we, we deal with that regularly. You deal with that on a daily basis, right? The world around us, the culture around us is always trying to get us all to assimilate, to go into the, 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 the philosophy, the systems, the whatever. And I, and I want us to recognize this because I think sometimes this gets missed in our own culture. There is no such thing as a neutral position. There's no such thing as a, even a non-religious position that you'll ever be asked to assimilate to. And I say that's missed in our culture a lot because I think there's this notion that in our culture, specifically looking at the church, looking at Christians, our culture would often say, you want people to assimilate into this religious mindset, and we want to have the freedom to abstain from any kind of religious influence. We want to have this, you know, either self-defined or, or neutral existence or whatever, right? So we kind of, we create this dichotomy between religious mindsets and non-religious, the, 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 the religious or the secular. And I think it's important for us to recognize that there's no such thing as neutral. That secular is in, in and of itself is, is, is always going to have religious undertones to it. In fact, it's going to have religious overtones to it. When I was growing up, so, you know, I was born in the, in the kind of early mid-70s. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 80s. Um, I remember being in public school, feeling very much indoctrinated into this mindset of um, uh, self-love, right? And if, if you, you know, if you recall during that period of time, if you lived through that period of time, Whitney Houston had this big anthem, Right? The greatest love of all is found inside of me. That, that was kind of like an anthem, I think, for a lot of the philosophy and thinking of the, of the, of the era. And it was, it was really, um, easily seen in the schools because that's what we were taught. Love yourself. Right? You're, you're the most important thing. You're, to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And I think about that now and I think, you know, what we were being indoctrinated into was very much this religious idea of narcissism. Right? Narcissus was this son of a Greek god who was just so enamored with and in love with himself <laughs> that we've all heard that story. And we, we have this term now called narcissism for people who are just so self-focused. We were, I think we were being heavily indoctrinated into believing that like our greatest love was truly us, which is a direct contradiction to what the Lord tells us, not that we're to hate ourselves or have this bad self-image, but that to recognize that our our, our greatest love and our greatest hope is not found in us, but in 
Him. So it's not a neutral thing. It's not just to say, well, this is religious and this is secular. It's, let me swap a, another God for the God that you know. You, let's take God, the God of heaven out of the equation and let's put Narcissus in there instead. And that happens all the time. I was thinking about when my kids were growing up in the early, you know, the early 2000s and their, their kind of elementary school years. And it seems to me that they were constantly being indoctrinated with the, what, if we were going to go back to Greek mythology, the goddess Gaia, which is the mother earth goddess. It was all about the environment and recycling and making sure that we're taking care of the planet. And I mean, the level of how every subject in school was just like constantly focused on this. I mean, it was, it was crazy watching this. It was like, you guys are being totally indoctrinated into this. And again, it's not to say that care for the planet is a bad thing, but, the, but to the level at which this was like where your hope is going to be found, if we can just preserve this thing, it's not neutral anymore. It becomes sw- the swapping of, of a god for another. And may, maybe perhaps today, I don't know, I mean, there's all kinds of gods and goddesses that I think we're presented with. I think of, 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 of what's going on in our society right now, and I think, you know, the, if there's a god or a goddess of self-expression, of, of sort of this individuality and this autonomy, that maybe that's the God that we're all running after. But there's no such thing as neutral. So why does Daniel draw the line at eating the king's food? Is eating food bad? No. Is eating good food bad? Heck no. I, I mean, I'm sure the king had some really good food. But he's saying, no, I'm drawing the line here because that's where the line needs to be drawn. There has to be this sense in which God's people stand up and say, no. There's nothing neutral about this. You're asking me to enter into a covenant fellowship, into allegiance with a God that's not the true God. And I think there's a tremendous application for us to consider in our own lives with this. Where do you draw the line? As you're living in the world today and you're being constantly pulled into assimilating into culture, where do you draw the line? At what point do you say, no, if I submit to that, it could compromise my allegiance to God, and so I'm not going to go there. And, and, and I think the thing that's important for us to say is that it's, it's critical for us to know those boundaries, whatever they are, and they may be different for us, but know those boundaries because those type of situations surround you every day. Notice that the king wasn't asking Daniel to do something blatantly seedy here. You know, Asphanaz wasn't coming up and saying, hey guys, I know, you know, I know where the king keeps his stash of dirty magazines and weed. Come on. It was, no, eat, eat the choice. Here's the best that our society has to offer. Like, take this. Remember verse 5. All appearances, the king is saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you the best that the world has to offer. And so it is with the world that we live in. I think, I don't think there's a, there's, there's, everything is seedy. It's subtle. And it can seem like good things, but there's a hook. There's a hook. You know, to be accepted, to assimilate, to fit in in society, that, that can be a, a, a good thing, but the hook is, Self-glory and pride are lurking. 
this idea of, of beauty that's so important to us and, and taking care of ourselves and trying to dress nice and to you know, be fashionable. Again, in and of themselves, not a bad thing, but there's a, there's a, there's a hook because there's idolatry and temptation that's lurking. Wealth, success, fame. Nothing wrong. But there's a hook lurking, greed, self-reliance, self-dependence. And when we give our allegiances to anyone and anything other than God who alone deserves that place in our lives, the God who can say, look, all of those things rightly viewed from me are just gifts, but they're not your hope, they're not your life, they're not your salvation. I alone have that role. They don't define you. That's, that's me, Right? If, if, we, if, we can, if we can approach it like Daniel did and see things that, through that lens, we're okay. But the minute we start to, to look at all of those good things and make them into God things, we've defiled ourselves. And that's what Daniel's recognizing here. He's not going to be defiled. And neither can we. So how are we doing in that area? What things take away your allegiance to God? Now, if you're here today and you can honestly say to yourself, you know, maybe I've been a little too concerned with external things. Maybe I've, I've put my trust and my hope in those things before the Lord. Maybe I haven't paid enough attention to what kinds of things are having an internal effect on me rather than just an external effect. Maybe my allegiances aren't where they should be. And I think we could probably all say that to some extent. Here's what we need to know. There's a better way. Daniel knew it, and we can understand it too. That's the third point. God's sovereign hand. Verse 14. So again, the eunuch Asphanaz listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food, and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. And for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. By the way, notice here that, that their Hebrew names are being used. They didn't, they didn't lose their identity, did they? This is three years in. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is amazing here, right? What is Daniel's obedience to the Lord, his allegiance to the Lord? How does that not only affect him individually, but how does that missionally display the glory of God? Well, God's sovereign hand is seen in all of this. Despite the fact that Babylon seems to be claiming victory over God's people, right? We just came in and we conquered you and we pulled you out and now we're in charge. We have to remember the lesson of our introduction. And that's this, God's in control. God is still very much in control. And this is what Daniel always knew to be true. And as we read the rest of this chapter here, we clearly see God's hand at work through Daniel's obedience. 
Now, I just want to point out a couple things that speak to the goodness and the sovereignty of God from these verses. Here we see that through Daniel's willingness to keep his allegiance to God, God performed a miracle. How is it that a group of young men, and, and I've, I've got one who lives in my home, so I know how they eat, and I know how that affects their body. How is it that a group of young men who eat nothing but vegetables and water can be found fatter and stronger and healthier than the guys who are eating protein and meat and drinking, all, you know, like eating like teenage boys want to eat? How is that possible? I don't know if there's some scientific proof that can show that vegetables and water would make you actually fatter. Maybe, maybe a little healthier in some ways, but I, I'm, I haven't seen that in practice. Like when, when I was in high school and we were going to the gym, me and my buddies every day, and we were lifting away, we weren't eating vegetables and water, right? We were drinking milk and we were raiding like all the meat in the fridge and that's what made us big. This is a miracle. How could four teenage boys also this is remarkable, be found to be 10 times wiser and more intelligent than anyone else in the greatest, most probably most educated kingdom on the planet. Four teenage boys. And the king's like, you guys are 10 times smarter than my smartest guys. That's God's sovereign. That's amazing. That, that is God at work to display not their Tremendous wisdom, but His glory through their lives. And did you notice in verse 21, this last verse here, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Why is that there? Well, th that's the narrator basically saying, look, I'm just starting this whole, this whole story of this 70-year span, but, but I want you to know it, it began with Nebuchadnezzar and it, it ended 70 years later with King Cyrus making a decree for the people to be able to go back. And just so you know, from the get-go here, Daniel was there till the end. Daniel saw Nebuchadnezzar's demise and the installment of the king that God would bring in who would allow the people to go back. He saw the reversal of the curse, of the judgment. He was there for all of it. Which is a remarkable thing. It was a remarkable thing because it shows us that God was faithful to Daniel. That God, in, in seeing Daniel's willingness to say, God, you are first. My priority is you. God blessed him and rewarded him with the ability to see the end of the judgment. I find that to be encouraging and remarkable. How do we live for God in a pagan world? You know, no matter what the world throws at us as an assimilation plan, we live among lions by taking a righteous stand in our allegiance to God. Not withdrawing from, but saying, look, here's where we're going to draw the line. Here's how we're going to show you what it means to honor God, trusting in His sovereign hand to work out the details so that He gets glory. And that there's good and there's blessing in our lives and in the lives of the world around us. I think in terms of application, we can say this. It's possible to be faithful in a pagan world. It is possible to be faithful in a pagan world. And we're, we can do that because we're called as Christians to be citizens of two. Right? We don't surrender one citizenship 
our citizenship in the kingdom of God by assimilating into the world. And we don't, assim- we don't, we don't abandon our citizenship in the world that we still inhabit and live in by withdrawing and forming a ghetto. We're called to, to be in the world, not of the world. Right? We're called to engage in both citizenships. And so I think we can learn from this example from Daniel and these other young men how to take the wisdom of God and apply it to the culture around us. Understand it. You know? Seek to know. But, but not that you would become like the world, but that you would know how to reflect God in it. And that's such an important thing. I think one of the biggest failures of the church is that when we form ghettos, then we have no relatability or relationship with the people around us. And we, we, we do see the us versus them mentality really, really solidify. That's a shame. We're called to be in the world, just not of the world. To know them, to, to engage with them, and to reflect the glory of God. And we see that in these young men. And know this, that it's possible then to be successful there too. Right? It's possible then to, to, to do that, to maintain that integrity and to be successful in the world. And by success, we can define that in lots of different ways. Most importantly, that we're successful in being faithful to the Lord. But looking how the Lord will use us then in engaging that world. These, these men had been taken captive in service to a Babylonian king, right? They were, they were servants. They were they were captives, and yet we're going to find out as we go through the rest of these chapters, these guys find themselves in positions of leadership instead. They go from being slaves and captives to being in the king's court and being high members, ranking members of government and in leadership. And that leadership was not the result of military power or political achievement, but it was achieved through the God-given wisdom that they had how he used them to be influencers in the society. And that's a biblical truth, right? We're, we're, you know, I think it's a general biblical principle that we can all cling to. I, I'm not saying that, and I would never say, you know, look, if you're obedient to God, you're going to find yourself in successful positions in the world. But here's the principle that I can say with great confidence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He'll put you right where he wants you. He'll use you as he's gifted you and called you. And in that sense, you, we can be successfully a part of this world for the glory of God. And ultimately, all that's found, and I'll close with this, and just being confident in the truth that in all these things that the world wants to offer you, you already have them in Christ. Right? We don't need to draw from the world to gain our identity or our wisdom or our, our fellowship. In Christ, we have wisdom. He's our wisdom. In Christ, we have our identity because He is our identity. He's given us a new identity. He is our obedience. He is our fellowship, not only with God, but with one another. That's found in Christ. Our security and our hope, our righteousness is found in Him. We don't need what the world has to offer. In fact, what the world needs is what we have to offer as we reflect the goodness of our God through Jesus Christ to them. 
But we'll continue to look at this. This is going to be a fun study as we go over these chapters, just to see more and more how that's fleshed out in the lives of these guys and what kind of application we can gain. For now, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for just this great reminder that you are you are the God of the universe. You are sovereign over it all. You are the one true God. And Lord, we are so blessed to know that by your grace, you've revealed that to us. You've revealed yourself to us and you've drawn us to yourself through your son. Thank you for this example. The example of these, these young men as we're going to see them over the coming weeks. What does it look like to live as God's people in the midst of a, of a world that doesn't know you? We don't want to withdraw, Father. We want to be used by you. Even if it means, as it will for these guys, it means tremendous personal risk to us. That's okay if, if we know that, Father, your name is being magnified and glorified. That, that the truth and, and, and the goodness of who you are is, is being known and, and received even, Lord. So thank you for this example. And thank you that, Lord, we're not just called to live by example alone, but, Lord, you've given us your Son, and in Christ we have the power, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to actually live like this. So use us for your glory. and Transform our world for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.